Hey guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy. Morning and welcome to another episode of Dubai Works Business Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Ramesh Ramachandran, an innovative entrepreneur and executive leader in the hydrocarbon and chemical sector across many regions, including the Americas, the Middle East and India. He's got extensive experience in transformational stewardship, uh, navigating organizations through periods of accelerated growth and challenges, as we'll talk about the pandemic as well. He's adept at forging alliances with global business partners and enhancing synergies to drive growth uh, for those organizations as well. So Dr. Ramesh is the principal at Megvin Advisors LLC. He's also executive board advisor, keynote speaker, and an academic author. So many things here. Can't wait to get stuck into this conversation. Today, we'll be talking about the challenges and learnings of being a leader during difficult times, the impact of the pandemic, on the oil and gas industry particularly, and, you know, we mentioned hydrocarbon as well, and what the future uh, we're going to have as a big push towards sustainability. Good morning, Dr. Ramesh. A very good morning to you. Great to be here. And as we as we have identified, it is the morning where you are, very early in the morning. <laughs> Absolutely. It is three o'clock in the morning here, but those are the perils of being a global executive these days, right? I mean, you have to be awake when the people need you. So that's part that comes with the territory. Yeah. So, so you mentioned you're in New Jersey, it's 3 a.m. and you've got a call at 4.30 a.m. Is this a, a regular occurrence? Is this something you've been dealing with uh, for a while? Not as often as uh, you know to make get it to a point of being unhealthy i would say so maybe two days a week because the rest of the world is obviously either finishing up if it is asia or australia europe is just kind of waking up at this time of the day so mm. america kind of plays catch up if you're in uh, you know if you're located here yeah but it works as long as it's not a daily occurrence it's not too bad yeah, and is that is that because of the global remit of what you do, or is it mainly to do with the pandemic? No, it's mainly because of the global remit. It's always been this way. When I was based in Dubai for about six to seven years, and then in Kuwait for about three years, those are much nicer locations to be a global executive because you kind of uh, manage the time zones it's a little easier to manage the time zones from those locations but if you're a global executive based in the us this early morning uh, you better be a morning person to survive is the <laughs> yeah exactly one of my friends is based in new york spent some time here recently and found it very challenging the other way around as well i think if it's a us Middle East, uh, it's just not favorable. But if you have to, as you said, do it from Dubai for Asia or India as well, and sometimes the US, you can maybe manage. Very true, very true. And, and so um, I've covered a lot of things there, but how would you introduce uh, your, your role at the moment? Yeah, right now I am an advisor to quite a few companies, but if you look at what has happened over the last uh, 30 years that I've been in industry, I would say the experience has uh, covered the whole gamut as far as the world is concerned. 
started off as uh, your classic Indian immigrant, you know, studied in India, then moved over to the US to finish my PhD in chemistry, uh. and then worked in about four or five different parts of the US, worked in Canada for some time, then in Europe, then I came back to India, worked in Mumbai for about three years, then I was in Dubai, then in Kuwait, then completed the circle of life and came back to the US. So <laughs> just going through the world and seeing the different cultures and what their values are and seeing what is common across these cultures in the world of leadership and growth and seeing what is different in different parts of the world is, is what has made me what I am today. Interesting. So when, when you finished studies, which industry did you enter and what, were, what was the kind of remit roles that you had at that time in the early stage of your career? It's, it's actually a, you know, amusing story when I reflect on it because my undergrad was in engineering. You know, it was actually in mechanical engineering. My master's and PhD were in surface and colloid chemistry, which is a completely different field on small particles and, uh, you know, soaps and how and cosmetics and stuff like that. And then what I got my experience in in terms of what marketing is all about and leadership is all about is when I was fortunate enough to work with Gillette, which was a separate company at that time on the, uh, on the razor. And uh, people forget that the current sensor razor, it has a white strip on top of the blade you know, which is supposed to make your skin silky. That polymer is what I did my PhD on. Ah. And uh, it's a fascinating story because I still remember that razor was actually originally invented for women because this whole concept that uh, something would be smooth on your skin is something that uh, people thought women might like for a couple of years or three years. Mm. And what has it been about 35, 40 years now? And uh, the razor still remains, uh, that white strip has still become an inherent part of this uh, shaving ritual across the world. Wow. So that's when, you know, I was a stereotypical Indian scientist, if you will, but because I was involved as a partner, I was of course working on the Dow side, on the chemistry side, and Gillette was clearly the leader who owns the patent. That helped reprofile my uh, my image to the outer world that uh, this person also understands markets and how to commercialize something that is uh, a technology innovation. So I switched. I did my MBA at that time, a part-time MBA that the company was nice enough to sponsor, and then switched from the technical side to the commercial side and then got involved in a whole lot of things like hydrocarbons. And, you know, that's, that is the main reason I was moving around the world. Wow. A lot of adaptivity and, and we'll get to that, you know, bringing it up to current speed, but that's a fascinating story. So essentially from a chemistry and an engineering uh, background, you did a PhD that was really a product specific, so almost like a designer solution to a product that uh, was adapted by Gillette or was part of their thinking that they thought, oh, this is amazing, let's, let's kind of refine that and let's patent it once you're on board, or how did that work? It's primarily Gillette's innovative thinking. It was actually a woman and uh, I tell you, to, to actually think, if you, if you just step back and say that somebody would think of putting something that is slippery when wet, 
when on top of a razor blade and imagine that people would actually like it is uh, is unbelievable right mm. and then and then to see that that product stands the test of time for 35 years there is a learning there itself especially to the innovative listeners that are out there that sometimes when you're developing a product you all the market research in the world may not give you all the answers. Sometimes you just have to go with your gut that you just say, you know what, people are going to like this stuff. And, uh, and the rest is history. Of course, the power of Gillette marketing helps, right? I mean, sometimes you don't even realize what you're going to like till till these companies come in, but that's a lesson I've kept with me all my life because initially when I was working on it with them in my wildest dreams, I didn't think this polymer would have, such an impact for so long amazing so fascinating i'm going down the business route because that's where my brain's going at the moment but it's fascinating because essentially gillette already existed this company it was it had different products this wasn't uh part of their products they were selling things without this innovation they add this innovation which uh, you know you gave a kind of a timestamp on it but a lot of us will know of this innovation in the last 15, 20 years, because it just accelerated from that original piece, it accelerated. And, you know, from many angles there, I, I know all the campaign and marketing, the best the man can get, Gillette, and then the different blades, three, and then Wilkinson Stewart did Quattro, four, and then five, and then everyone's doing it. And then P&G buy Gillette, and it's worth billions. And, you know, all, all not big, well, I wouldn't say it's because of this blade, but, but because of this innovation, but you can, there's so many good business lessons there in terms of, you you know, innovate and adapt and don't just kind of say, hey, we do razor blades, we'll help you shave. You can kind of uh, improve as you go as well. Is that is that kind of, what, what could you add? <laughs> Absolutely, very well put. Because look, from a business standpoint, if a product lasts forever, you cannot make money, right? I mean, you, you almost need planned obsolescence as we call it. Like if that razor cartridge lasted a month you know it's kind of hard to make money Mm. so look at how well they managed to position it they put a polymer on top of the blade and when that white strip dissolves with contact with water over a period of i don't know four days five days whatever you think that the blade is not working anymore because the polymer has disappeared right Mm. so from a consumer standpoint and business standpoint if you want people to keep spending money and buying something constantly that you use, and especially in the world of cosmetics, this is a wonderful way to make sure that, you know, the product is actually recycled or thrown away or whatever, and then you buy another razor cartridge because the polymer is gone, right? because <laughs> you want this to feel good. And they're just masters at it. I take my hats off to them. Fascinating. So obviously what you're alluding to there is that the blade is still fine. It's just the, the little piece has worn out. Therefore, our mind I, thinks it's... I think so. I shouldn't <laughs> speak to Gillette here, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the, the more they, the more cartridges you buy, the better for them, obviously. Right? Yeah, definitely. But the, sorry to labor on this, but you mentioned it was patented. How come so many other uh, companies can use a similar technique then? The, the patent expired, I, you know, there is an expiration date of 15 years. So don't oh, okay. forget the first patent was sometime in 87, if I remember right. So, uh, mm. so now others have joined the bandwagon because everybody wants to put a strip now on top of the blade. Yeah. Because nobody buys a cartridge if it doesn't have a white strip. 
Yeah, okay. Um, I haven't had a PhD in chemistry and, and science on the podcast before, so I'm afraid I'm not going to be, uh, you know, asking the right questions. But can you tell us what would one normally study and what's the career path, the typical career path for someone in, in the STEM sector or in sciences and, and that sort of education? Yeah, look, look, chemistry often, uh, you have to look at chemistry because it covers the whole gamut, right? I mean, on the medicine, anything that is a molecule, I mean, water is a chemical, mm. right? I mean, uh, your, your cotton is a chemical. You can pretty much anything that you use in the world today is, is actually a chemical. But depending on which part of the industry you are, it gets some more what I would call favorable uh, turn, or it gets a you know it gets a term that is like poison. Snake venom is a chemical, but so is uh, a painkiller, mm. right? So, so if you're taking a painkiller, you say I'm in the medicine field, or I'm in pharma, or uh, you know, so that's got a nice hue to it. If you're in cosmetics. Botox is a chemical, mm. right? So that is uh, so people are very happy to see how does a chemical react with skin. Yeah. But then so is cyanide, which uh, which kills people, and people are like, oh my god, I'm not putting any chemicals in my body. And people say that while they are drinking a green juice and uh, you know drinking a lot of water, which are chemicals in their own right. Yeah. So. So chemistry in itself, it depends on which part of chemistry you're involved in that uh, allows you to decide for yourself what is it that uh, you want to do with chemicals. Without it, obviously, you cannot survive. I mean, every innovation in the world involves some kind of chemistry, whether it's biochemistry, materials, you know, medicine, uh, you know, oncology, you know, chemotherapy. I mean, therapy itself is based on chemicals in a lot of different fields, but at the same time, there's a bad side to it. Like if you go down the field of pollution, you know, environmental issues, and uh, if you go down that track, then you want to figure out how to emit less chemicals to keep the world a safer place and a better place. So it covers the whole gamut. My focus was on water-based chemicals. So that's what my PhD was on. And that brings with it its own share of pluses and minuses in terms because water is by far the most universal solvent in the world. So when you work on chemicals associated with water, there is a lot of value that you bring to the table there in terms of markets and growth and business and stuff like that. Okay, fascinating. I'm making notes because there's so so many questions coming to mind as you speak. But and I want to get back to the water. So to loosely understand, you know, people in the oil and gas sector uh, can have, you can have a career in chemistry and, and you were involved somewhat there. We'd talk about that. And then obviously in pharma, uh, so pharmaceuticals and all to do with the vaccines, there are scientists, there are uh, chemists, there, there's pharmacy from a chemistry point of view uh, with things like that. But then from the Gillette story and the these sort of, cosmetics but consumer products from PNG from Unilever many of these things uh, a friend of mine told me the other day he doesn't use toothpaste because it's got chemicals in it he used baking soda powder or something like that and I was like wow oh didn't think of that so th there's lots of things there um, and, and people all these companies need to hire people who are have those skills and university and training is that correct that's absolutely true and 
And the more people who understand the world of chemicals, I think it is better for the world because one of the biggest misnomers that uh, I try and explain when I go to high schools and you know children want to know if they should pursue a career in, uh, in the world of chemistry because a lot of people are interested is that people forget that nature is full of chemicals, you know, but just because something is natural, don't assume that it doesn't have chemicals. Water is a chemical, mm, you know, uh, mm. hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, you know, all your uh, natural stuff that people drink or uh, buy products with cotton, if you're wearing a cotton shirt, you know, cotton has a chemical structure to it. Mm. And all natural products are, you know, have a chemical structure, you know, and that's what I always tell the chair, you know, the students, snake venom, is a natural product. It's a chemical, you know, but okay. uh, so you, that doesn't mean you drink it. And so is oil and gas, you know, oil and gas is something that you're blessed with and uh, it provides energy and you need that to do uh, anything you want in life. So, but chemical by itself has a certain taint, like you were talking about your friend not wanting to use toothpaste because it's a chemical. I can assure you if he's using a neem stick or some other quote unquote natural product, that's a chemical too. Okay. But he feels that if something is uh, made by human beings, it might be a bad chemical. But guess what? Look at these vaccines. They are probably, I mean, they're something that have obviously saved the world. Some of the best chemicals in the world, right? Because yeah. without them, uh, who knows what the impact of this pandemic would have been. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so, okay. If, can we try and make this a little bit of a tangible? Are there, like uh, fats, are there good and bad fats? Are there good and bad chemicals? Is there any rule of thumb that listeners can take away and go, oh, I'm going to stay away from that one and I'm going to steer towards this one? Not really. I mean, <laughs> this is something that uh, it's not as simple as, uh, you know, good chemicals versus bad chemicals. I mean, they obviously exist. But this is a field where in the scientific area, we probably need to increase the uh, awareness of people across the world that in science, you are going to keep discovering what is good and what is bad. And it's going to be an evolution, you know, like uh, the earth was flat once upon a time and then people realized it was a sphere. And this is something that's going to happen in science too. Something that just like good fat and bad fat, Remember the days where coconut oil and butter were the worst things in the world, then out comes the keto diet and some <laughs> other diet that is good for you. But science will evolve. But just because science is evolving, people shouldn't get cynical because if data suggests that something that you thought was good is now bad, that's okay. We should feel comfortable saying, hey, this is what we thought. Now we realize that uh, this is something good and it's not bad and uh, you adjust as you go forward. Like climate change, for example, you know, there was a time where people didn't believe in it. Today, thankfully, the world has embraced climate change because mm. of scientific data. So science inherently means evolution with new data and not being afraid to say, ah, 15 years ago, this is what I thought. Now I know this is not good for you. That's mm. okay. The sad part is people get very cynical saying you changed your mind. So everything you say is untrue. Mm. And that's the part that we probably need to come out of when we are looking at science and data. Fascinating. Yeah. So you, you kind of brought it up to the current status quo on, on chemicals and on people's decisions around products and organic and different choices. And 
what I'm getting from it is constantly ev- evolution and education and awareness uh, is really important. Absolutely, because look at the trend today in the food industry, right? I mean, organic, no pesticides, natural, there are sections there in places where people feel that if they buy a product that has not had any pesticides at all, they are eating something that is extremely pure and they want to stay away from it, you know, the whole world of organic farming. But if you really look at, if you are an organic farmer or if you try growing something in your house and you absolutely don't put any uh, uh, pesticides in, the bugs could come and eat the vegetables, you know, and nothing could grow. So if you extrapolate that to trying to feed the world with purely organic farming and the amount of water you have to consume, the amount of land you need in order to be able to feed the world, taking that approach, people are going to go hungry. Mm. You know, yeah. so so the science has to come into play and uh, chemistry education is the only way to make sure that people make rational judgments, once again, based on data and not get afraid when the data supports uh, stuff that they believed in and then found out it's not to be true. That is going to continue to happen as we go along. Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah, I think uh, one, there's not one solution for everything when it comes to environment and science and, and the planet's uh, well-being. There was a documentary on the TV that evening uh, about fish farming in Dubai, and it was amazing, the science and the innovation, like really impressive entrepreneurs doing it, um, and they can simulate different oceans, Atlantic oceans, to uh, grow the different fish. And obviously, from in, in a positive way, that, that will uh, not have... Uh, pollution, it won't have plastic in the sea, uh, lots of different benefits. But as you said, if that was the only solution to foods, then there there might be other things to think about. Correct, correct. Because look, what people want is they want to eat stuff that is pure. They want to go back to a time where there was nothing industrial in any part of what they consume or what they breathe which is unfortunately a fantasy because that level of population could be fed, clothed and taken care of using that approach. Mm. But like it or not, you know, we have eight to nine billion people out there in the world today. And if if this entire planet needs to be fed, needs to be housed, and they all have aspirations, we got to figure out how are you going to do this in a sustainable way. But, you know, one of the challenges, of course, is we have to do this in a sustainable way because you don't want to be eating fish that has got plastic in it and put that into your system because that is going to wipe out a big portion of, uh, you know, of the environment and the, uh, you know, and people as such. So we got to find balance, but going back to how we used to live 100 years ago is not the solution either because uh, productivity is an important part look at this conversation we are able to have with these technologies but like it or not these technologies that enable this conversation have an environmental impact Mm. so how do you so we got to find that balance Mm. yeah fascinating um so talking about how we used to live and uh I, i personally have the paleo diet the hunter-gatherer diet do you, what 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 do you 
personal question, Dr. Ramesh, but do you have a choice of diet or do you change it? And how do you view this topic? See, I, I am a, what I call a fair weather vegetarian. I grew up vegetarian, obviously, because, uh, you know, India is predominantly vegetarian. But then when I uh, came to the US at the time, you know, it was uh, late 80s, it wasn't easy to be a vegetarian because being one was very expensive and you know i didn't i literally had absolutely no money and uh, the best deals for a you know for a full meal in a day in the us at that time was from uh, you know the burger king whopper was 99 cents you know <laughs> and that kind of fed you but it was anathema i mean like it was uh, it was the ultimate uh, what can i say violation of my religious upbringing because i was eating uh, you know hamburger so I prayed as hard as I could and told God, hey, look, you know, uh, I've got to feed myself. So make sure you don't punish me too hard. And I, I violated some of those codes. But today, I would say, thankfully, you know, I am able to afford a pretty good, uh, you know, a vegetarian diet predominantly. I say 90, 90% is uh, vegetarian and uh, balance the time because the big change now that I have embraced quite strongly, of course, is uh, this whole concept of mindfulness and living in the moment and stuff like that, which mm. has really become very popular. And that has really helped to uh, be able to focus on how the human mind works. Mm. And that introspection, I think, goes a long way these days in ensuring that you lead a balanced life. I mean, diet is an extremely important component of it because how you eat, the timings you eat and what you eat, I think has an enormous impact on your, uh, on your mind. Interesting. And uh, what I would say if the pandemic period, if, if there is one thing with all the mental health challenges that came roaring to the surface during the pandemic time, if it's the one thing that has come up in the world across regions that I find with the people I mentor, with some of the companies I work with, is that the human mind plays a much more powerful role in terms of keeping people happy than wealth and family and all the other stuff. And managing how human beings think is probably a direction where the world will go in the next few years to make sure that people are content and happy. Interesting. Yeah, touching on leadership. And, but as you as you talked about, you know, we were talking about food consumption, but of course, the mind and our different senses consume other things. And that's as important. Before we uh, move on to uh, this region and what your work here in the past, I, I wanted to just uh, touch on water and chemicals. Uh, it's something I know little about, but I know uh, consumers are more aware of uh, what's in the water, whether it, there's sodium and different types of water. Uh, can you just explain, uh, you know, water and chemicals and what we consume on the products from the shelf? Sure. Look, basic consumption of drinking water, you know, that is uh, you take uh, water that thankfully nature has uh, blessed us with, you know, in the springs, the natural water that you find in various places. Sometimes it is processed using this uh, process called uh, reverse osmosis, which essentially takes away all the uh, bad stuff that might be in water. Thankfully, there are global specifications on how much chemicals water can have. 
and it's by far the most universal uh, thing to have in your body, you know, like uh, the six or seven glasses of water that uh, people should be drinking every day. So literally, if you look at water, it's uh, to go a little nerdy on you. It's two molecules of hydrogen and one molecule of oxygen. H2O, uh, yeah. <laughs> universal H2O. It is the universal solvent that you should drink. And then comes the the human mind, right? I mean, the water can get a little boring if all you're drinking is, uh, you know, plain water. So people carbonate it, you know, this is the uh, uh, aqua con gas, uh, you know, uh, sparkling versus still, if you will, which is nothing but a little bit of... Uh, carbon dioxide in it so that the bubbly uh, feeling helps you and then you slowly start bleeding into flavors you know they add a little bit of sugar they uh, add some lime you know and you will find people overreacting to it saying oh my god there is flavor in the water so it must be bad for me i mean that that is a stretch i mean anything that helps you hydrate and keep and stay hydrated especially in a region like uh, Dubai in the Middle East, where things are really hot, I would say is is a very helpful thing to do. And it is very unlikely that you'll come up with a scenario where drinking too much water causes problems. You know, it's uh, it is something that is always good for you. And if you have a choice between drinking any other kind of beverage versus water, even from a complexion, health, and so many other factors standpoint, water is probably the best thing to uh, keep in your body. Okay, interesting. But in terms of the, you know, it's, it's good to have an explained that way and to know of what other products emerge. But in terms of people's choices, especially in the UAE and Dubai, there are many water brands, they're international, there's local um, and there's lots of different labeling and packaging. People consume, obviously, uh, in this climate, we consume probably more water in a day than, than others. Is there any general sort of advice that we should be curious about, we should be educating ourselves on? All the branded waters, I mean, I lived in Dubai for about eight years. There is really very, there is hardly any difference, okay? I mean, we all know the famous green bottle of uh, from France, you know, something that has a French label to it or the Dutch label to it. Sometimes I'm amazed that people are willing to spend, uh, you know, the 50, 60 dirhams in a bottle of water. That is, uh, that is pure, uh, what shall I say, uh, excessive luxury. But if it works for you, why not, right? Enjoy yourself. But the regular uh, water that you get for uh, five dirhams is, equally good. There is okay. absolutely nothing wrong with it. And so is the water that the municipality in Dubai supplies. I mean, because thankfully it's a system that tests the uh, quality of water extremely well. So you cannot, uh, you, you cannot get people to drink contaminated water because that is one of the biggest fears when it comes to water is that if the municipal system is not controlling the quality of water that you're drinking, uh, that can create a very big problem. Mm. And uh, so from a drinking standpoint, I would say you all are very fortunate to live in an ecosystem where the quality of water is managed very well. Mm. And so is the entire food specification. So enjoy yourself. I mean, if uh, one particular water makes you feel better when you're in the gym, then you're running, you know, why not? If it, that is, uh, that's what keeps you happy, go for it down to marketing that's good reassuring for us to know 
Dr. Ramesh, when did you first start working in the Middle East? What was your experience in, in Kuwait and then in the UAE? I came to the UAE, I would say about uh, 15 years ago. I think it was around 2003, 2004 timeframe. And I was in Dubai for nine years, actually, you know, across various, uh, various parts of Dubai. Uh, the company that I was the CEO of, uh, you know, Emmy Global, was headquartered in Dubai because it was half owned by an American company and half owned by uh, the government of Kuwait. So we wanted a global location where we could one serve the globe and at the same time attract the talent that we needed because we needed Asians, Europeans, Americans, uh, you know, and Middle Eastern, uh, you know, staffing. And by far, Dubai is the Definitely. only place in the world that can offer that kind of a mix and also attract talent. I mean, you, you never had a challenge if you recruited anywhere in the world and said you're going to be posted in Dubai, the interview could end right there if you had the right person. You know? so, I think that's so even that more the case now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What 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 firm was that? What was the company? The the firm was called ME Global. So Middle East Global was the uh, was the pun on it, and the product that we were making uh, in Canada, Kuwait, and in Germany was. Uh, you know, abbreviated as MEG, it's called monoethylene glycol, and it's the raw material that goes into making polyester fiber and these PET bottles where you get water from, right? So, uh, so ME Global was a takeoff on that name. There was Middle East Global located in the Middle East, and at mm. the same time, it had MEG in it, which was the abbreviation of the product that we were making. Now I'm putting the dots together. And your current forum, firm is MEGVIN, MEGVIN. Is that similar abbreviation? See, that's a pure coincidence because uh, I have two kids and my daughter's name is Meghna, M-E-G-H-N-A, and my son's name is Vinay, V-I-N-A-Y. Ah, nice. And MEG is the reason why I have won uh, various things in the world, I guess, <laughs> as far as my life. So it was a pun on my children's names, and on MEG, so it uh, and VIN is, I guess, a good uh, substitute for WIN. So it's worked out in both ways. And the the current work that you do in this advisory firm, I'm sure somehow uh, covers your expertise in that area. In the previous MEG acronym area, I can't pronounce the chemicals exactly. Yes. So most of the most of the work right now that I'm involved in and will be involved in in the very near future has got to do with sustainability and uh, you know with this. Uh, whole move towards uh, cleaning plastic from the environment okay. uh, because of a lot of things that I was exposed to and I've started analyzing, I feel that the plastic waste problem is something that someone with my kind of expertise can be a bridge and a problem solver because if I look at one of the biggest problems that both the chemical industry, which has served me very well, and the environmental activist group that are uh, wanting to find a solution to this, I think we need to find a bridge to solve this problem because this is a problem that is very serious, mainly in the oceans, but also in, in the deserts. I mean, like, uh, there were recent articles about how in Dubai and Saudi, they are finding camels who have actually passed away because of uh, plastic in their stomach. Yeah. 
And uh, we absolutely need to find a solution to this because plastic, while it's an extremely important material, it's sustainability profile is very, very poor. And uh, we have only ourselves to blame for it. Mm. And there are viable solutions. And that is what all my activity is going to be focused on, you know, within a matter of weeks, actually. So I started advising, I would say more in terms of some MA activity and stuff like that. But thankfully, I'm uh, sufficiently blessed where the primary driver because of uh, all my experience is not economic anymore, but uh, more on the sustainability side. But plastic waste is probably where all my focus is going to be, you know, during, uh, you know, the next uh, five or 10 years. Mm. Is that specifically uh, in the sort of corporate products uh, consumables space or is it? also from a strategic uh, you know, government and policy and regulation space? Are you doing it on both sides? It has to be done on both sides because I tell you, if you only focus on one, people want the status quo and don't want to be bothered. You know, like the manufacturers, the consumers, you know, you and me, we, we just want to buy the product, take it. And if somebody wants us to put it in a receptacle, we want to put it somewhere and just say, you know what, I'm done. You know, now it is somebody else's problem to deal with it. But if the policymakers are able to come in and say, you will have to do A, B, and C so that you can live in a planet and in an environment that is sustainable, that encourages the right kind of behavior, you know? And you can influence human behavior very quickly if you explain to people why it is good for them, you know? Look at how fast people were able to comply with wearing a mask to make sure that they were protected. So people are responsive, but we need to do it not as an edict, but by explaining to them, this is what you need to do. But if we don't do it, I tell you, this plastic pollution is going to increase exponentially and really, really cause all kinds of problems. I mean, today, the kind of places you're finding plastic, like in the fish that you eat in uh, human beings, uh, of course, the beaches and, you know, the stories, I mean, the pictures, everybody has seen the stories of this pollution. Something has to be done. And there are practical down to earth ways to do it, but it will require support from both sides. You know, it, it is something that governments and policy will have to be implemented, which is happening and based on our discussions with various government agencies. Industry has to be a part of the solution and the consumer has to be a part of the solution. Mm. But we can't wait. It has to be done with an enormous sense of urgency. And that's where all my focus is going to be. Good to hear. Good to know. Um, So just again, tackling it and asking the same question together in terms of governments and also corporates. You know, this has been a topic. The environment and sustainability has been a topic uh, maybe not as front to center in the media as most would like, but it's been, certainly been covered more in the last 20 years than, say, the subsequent 20 years. We've had attempted agreements like in Paris and different things like that. And also, probably before the pandemic, it was one of the main topics from a, a CEO mandate a, as a top down sort of uh you know, uh, in terms of uh, ESG and, and social and, and and, and these types of investing and these types of things, uh, from a, we we know it's a big issue. But what 
what is working in the last 20 years? What, what have you seen the data? What are the positive things? What are the things we should see hope in? What agreements in place from it? If you can think of examples of, of governance uh, that's positive for us and also companies that are doing the right thing. Very good question. Look, look, two things are positive, okay? Companies are reducing their carbon footprint. There's no, there is no argument against it because everybody is reporting that they're consuming less energy than they were the previous year, you know, producing more by consuming less energy, which is a good thing. But the world wants more. And the biggest impact that has happened in the last three to four weeks that I'm sure it was covered that shook up the world and people are still, uh, you know, it was an earthquake kind of a moment was what happened with Exxon in two weeks ago. Mm. <laughs> This little company called Little Engine Number One that managed to get two or three boat seats in Exxon by just pushing Exxon towards a more sustainable uh, and moving away from their energy <clears throat> intensive portfolio has really shaken the world because everybody in companies has now realized that investors <clears throat> are not going to buy your share or they are not going to invest in your company, or they are not going to fund your capital needs if you don't have a good sustainability strategy going forward. Mm -hmm. So I expect over the next two to three years that there is going to be a very radical shift because if you look at what happened to Shell where there was a legal ruling that Shell has to reduce its uh, carbon footprint. Mm. Uh, there was a Chevron, uh, you know, uh, uh, what shall I say, shareholder resolution, you know, to reduce their carbon footprint. And this is going to have a very, very big impact in the Middle East for all the energy companies and in the rest of the world for producers, because the shareholders and those with the, the Black Rocks of the world, the Fidelity, the Vanguards, the large investment companies are going to be telling these private companies and energy producers that either you clean up your act over the next three to five years. If not, we are not funding your capital needs. Well, interesting. Good story. Good example. I like it. So it's it's actually the, you know, the ESG movement in terms of investing has got to a uh, activist board level instead of in the 80s where we saw uh, activism in terms of boards trying to uh, corporate raiders and try and uh, extract value out of companies. Now in the, in the, in the new 20s, uh, the the parallel and the equivalent is trying to make the environment a world a better place. Quite cool if it's effective, <laughs> but yeah. amazing. Yeah. But so, but um, on on that level, I think it's interesting. People would say that those Exxon type companies or the big oil companies and energy companies are the ones to go after because of that relation with plastic. But actually, on another reason why they're they're good companies to change is because they actually have the biggest R&D budget. Some of them spend one to $1.4 billion a year in R&D. So they're actually, as much as governments are invested in investing in new areas for sustainability, these big companies have big investment deep pockets as well. Correct. And, and this is where I tell you the world is struggling. And I'm personally struggling too when I meet with these uh, companies and governments as to who needs to carry the ball because everybody wants the other person to take care of it. Mm. You know, if you're a producer of plastic, the company's view is, look, I'm just a producer. 
I can't help it if you, the user, doesn't want to go and put it in a recycle bin, okay? Mm. The consumer, like you and me, when we get a bottle or we take a plastic bag, our view is, look, it's there, I'm going to use it. It's up to the government to figure out or up to the companies to give me a product where I don't have to go through this hassle of putting it in the right kind of a bin. The waste treatment guy goes, hey, if you guys would only put it in the right place, I can take it and I can treat the waste. So everybody is doing this, you know, like it's the other person's problem and nobody wants to pay for it. And while we are doing all that, the planet is burning, mm. right? So, but the, the good news or the bad news is uh, the level of activism, attention and policy changes that are coming down the pike are so uh, coming down with such a sense of urgency now that if people don't respond, there are going to be some rules coming down that's going to make your head spin. Because uh, when I look at what's coming up in COP, uh, you know, the World Paris Agreement and some of the other COP meetings that are coming up, I expect some policy directives that will it'll be too late to change once uh, the, the world the governments, you know, force some changes on us. So we better hurry up from the industry and government side. It has a huge impact on the Middle East, obviously. Mm. Uh, but if we don't, others will make the decision for us. Something very, very uh, significant, I expect to see happen over the next six months. Interesting. We'll, we'll follow that eagerly. Um, it, it just I was going to ask a blunt question, is capitalism bad? <laughs> but I think what you're hinting towards is that tangible things, tangible things that, that hurt or penalties and things like that can drive action faster. Uh, is that correct? See, my, I mean, I'm obviously a card-carrying capitalist, right? And uh, I, would, uh, I would be very, very much in favor of industrial and commercial solution because I still feel the best driver to solve all this is money, mm. okay? Recycling, energy efficiency, uh, you know, conversion to EVs, alternative energy investments, money by far is the best driver of innovation and growth across the world. And this is true everywhere, you know, whether you're in Africa, whether you're in Canada, whether you're in, uh, you know, any part of the world, you know, money is by far, I feel the best driver of innovation. At the same time, if environmental compliance, you know, improving the environment is not part of this whole money-making process, that would be unhealthy. You know, we need to be over the next five, 10 years, product innovation and uh, research and development and products that we bring in have to be able to answer the question, are you making the environment better when you introduce these products? Mm. And there will be a market for it. And uh, I think the consumer has finally woken up, at least the next generation has woken mm. up to say that they are willing to pay for it. Interesting. So, okay, two final questions to finish on. I know I'm conscious you've got a, a 4.30 a.m. call or so in New Jersey. So, but um, on that point, and then finishing on the policies of the region here in that top, in that area, um, in terms of money and energy, <laughs> I think you know where I'm going with this, but there's been a lot of talk about the cryptocurrencies and digital currencies and how much energy and consumption they use up. How big a problem do you think that is? It is a huge problem. And I tell you, my view on it is anytime you find an innovation that 
is creating a lot of buzz, you know, with uh, a lot of hype. I think you have to step back and ask the basic question, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Okay. And if people cannot answer that in, a, in the back of a post-it stamp or to a 10-year-old, you know, then you know that this is a trend that is not going to be sustained. Because I'm still trying to figure out what is the problem that uh, a crypto is uh, is trying to solve today. You know, like I can bring my U.S. dollars and exchange it in uh, in the UAE. I can take the dirhams. I can uh, you know wire transfer money. There is uh, people track it. You know, governments track it. So this crypto that is supposed to make uh, transfer of money completely opaque across the globe is that alone a market that is uh, that governments are going to allow to be changed, I I have to say I'm I'm a skeptic. Yeah, you know, because I'm still trying to figure out what are you what are you solving here. Good, good to hear a view from a skeptic. I've reserved my opinion, but I might hint, suggest that I think it's to do with speed of things. Uh, anyway, <laughs> we don't have to. So, but just see, you know, <laughs> but I, somebody needs to explain to me the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, here. yeah. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so um, you talked about policies at, at the government level. Uh, from a helicopter view, do you think that the initiatives are, are in place, um, you know, in terms of uh, the sort of environmental policies, the long-term goals in the UAE, and also the diversification into other, other energy sources in the Middle East are positive? They are positive, but I think they underestimate the pace of change that is happening in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Because if the economies, I mean, UAE is an advantage, it's not completely dependent on oil. Like, uh, you know, Dubai is, uh, is the Singapore model more, right? I mean, your safety, entrepreneurship, you know, innovation and attracting the best in the world, that model will work, but countries that depend on, I don't know, 70, 80% of their economy or GDP purely based on high oil prices, uh, that's not going to work. The only question is how quickly is that going to fade and can they pivot fast enough into a more diversified economy? Because this whole move of energy from, you know, transportation on electric vehicles, energy from green hydrogen, lower carbon footprint, that train has left the station and it's barreling out. Mm. I mean, the speed at which that change is occurring in the US, Europe, and all these large economies is unbelievable. I mean, it is is just beyond anyone's uh, scale of comprehension, the speed at which those changes are occurring. So if you're dependent on a product, like, you know, the line that people always use is, uh, you know, the world came out of the stone age, not because we ran out of stones, right? I mean, it's uh, innovation took us away. So the world will move away from oil and gas, not because there's not enough oil and gas, but because they innovate out into some other sources of energy. So we do have to pivot a lot faster. Yeah, brilliant. Good note to finish on. Uh, It's good that we have people like you helping uh, that innovation in the Middle East. Uh, so thank you for your time, Dr. Ramesh. I pr- particularly appreciate you joining us at this uh, inconvenient hour. So really nice to speak to you and look forward to chatting to you again. That's it for another episode of Dubai Works. Thank you so much for listening and please leave a review on the podcast platform that you're listening to. It really helps with organic searches. Also, if you'd like to appear on Dubai Works or know someone 
people has an inspiring business story in Dubai, please do get in touch on any of the smashy social platforms.